A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have with me Dr. Debbie Sutherland. Uh, Debbie is the CEO, or I'm sorry, CPO, the Chief People Officer of a large technology startup based in the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. And she's also the author of a really cool book, The Business of Ambiguity. Uh, Debbie, thank you for being with us this morning. Wow, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. Oh, yeah, absolutely glad to have you. And, and I say this morning, but for you, it's this evening. That's correct. It's, I'm, a, I'm a little ahead of you. I think I'm about seven or eight hours ahead. Yeah, and so that's the that's the beautiful thing of, um, you know, being able to do these things remotely. You know, in the old days of radio, when everybody had to be in the same studio, you were very limited on your guests, but now we can interview anybody from around the world. It, it really is a wonderful thing. Um, so, you know, I always want to know the path on how people get to where they are, you know, and, you know, your life story, your story makes you who you are. And something led you to focusing on this concept of the business of ambiguity. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've read through the book, it, it's some really, really cool stuff. I wonder if you'd share your story with us, share how you got to this point. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, I guess I would start in, in, in who I am and how I, when I first started to understand who I was and how I think, um, I've always wondered about how people think. I've always been curious about what were we thinking that got us here? So I guess if you were just to go back to the childhood jamas and, um, and what was going on when you were a kid, I was never in the drama. I seem to have always been on the fringe and watching people and trying to understand. And, and sometimes that made me feel like maybe I didn't, um, I wasn't involved enough or, um, but that's who I was. And so when I was uh, going to university, I, I, was, I went for a political science um, degree and I quit. Well, I can't say I quit, but really what I did is I took every third or fourth semester off and I went traveling and my parents didn't know about it at the time. Um, but I was, I wanted to explore. I just felt there was something more than what I was doing that I need to know about and I get different perspectives. So, um, so every, you know, I, I finished probably my degree just about a year longer than everybody else did. Um, but I felt I also had a great um, education in traveling. So when I became a, um, a young adult, my first professional job, I, I wanted something that had to do with traveling because I felt that that was unique. And of course, the only job I could think of at the time back then was aviation. And so, yes, I became a flight attendant and I was based around the world um, in different places in Germany and Singapore and you know, and I was flying to these amazing places. Um, but what I did get a little bit angsty about it because I just, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to know about the systems behind the job, the people, how it operated. And so I did gravitate to some centralized positions within aviation. So I was working for some big airlines in headquarters. So I did get some really, um, I think people could see something in me that maybe I was, um, I had some thinking processes behind me. 
So um, I, I loved it. I loved being in the milieu, in the center of the business and um, watching change, trying to create positive change. Um, I think at probably this point I could see that there were different perspectives because if you work in one domain for a period of time, you get a lot of maybe group thing going on. And I kept saying, but, but if we thought of it this way, have we, have we thought of it that way? And sometimes that always doesn't resonate with people. And so I, I, I kept exploring. And one of the things that I have found, obviously not at the time, that if you learn more, that that kind of puts you in the next sphere of, of thinking and perspective taking. So I did do an MBA um, because I just wanted to have that, that, that backbone of the business. Yeah. I, I think I thought well, but I didn't have the theory or the structure behind it to know what I was really talking about. So uh, I did get a, an MBA and we were traveling at that time. So I had been based in, um, in Malaysia and Singapore overseas. And then we traveled as an expat family to um, Qatar. And then we ended up here in the UAE. And I got a, another job um, where I was in a centralized position. It, this job was quite unique. It was a large-scale startup in the renewable energy sphere. And again, I, I, I was in the center of these amazing, smart CEOs and scientists and foreign leaders um, who were coming to the UAE because they really wanted to understand what was happening here with this company. Um, and that's where I probably started to think that um, this ambiguity thing is, is, is real. It's tough place to be in when um, the global policies are not in place yet. Renewable energy wasn't making money, but everybody wanted it to understand what it was. So I think that's where I started to um, watch these executives, um, ex- executives in, in, in general at the highest level. What, were, what are they thinking? How do they get to this space? Um, and then I could see that some of them didn't do very well in this space. Um, and maybe they didn't understand the ambiguity or um, didn't fare well, couldn't make decisions, um, maybe yelled at their team and maybe there was some blame going on. So I really knew that there was something about these other executives I wanted to learn about. So again, um, I wanted to be, I wanted to, I wanted some academic structure behind my thinking in the talent sphere. So I did go to Columbia University and I took the executive master's program there for org psychs. It's called XMA. Mm -hmm. And one of the um, really cool modules that we have is um, where we learn about group dynamics. And there was a conference, it's called the Group Relations Conference. And what it is, it's quite different from any conference you've ever been at. It's about three days long, and really it's a deep dive into the experiential learning processes of understanding groups and power and authority and consciousness and unconsciousness um, and how we work together in, um, in groups' behaviors and assumptions and biases. And I know everything I just said sounds fluffy <laughs> and No, and it fuzzy. doesn't. It, <laughs> it really doesn't. I mean, you know, if, if there's one thing that I bump into in my consulting work that, that if, if I had to say what's the single biggest problem that we have to solve for, it's issue with group dynamics. And so, you know, we can yeah. talk about this stuff being warm and fuzzy and fluffy and all this stuff. It is a very, very real issue. And successful companies may not know how to get through it, but they know it's a problem. 
Yeah. Well, and um, what's interesting is um, when I came out of that group, um, the GRC, I felt I had x-ray vision. I felt I was able to understand dysfunctional teams to higher level and I could walk into a room and really kind of like, oh, this is what's happening, um, even if they didn't necessarily know what was happening. Um, the good the good news of, of, of coming back to my job after, because I was working full time while I was doing this program, my CEO didn't necessarily understand organizational design or organizational behaviors, but he knew I was bringing back some good stuff and that I was helping the business because I would go, let me go and implement different changes in the business. And well, you can't always measure that um, incremental positive change in a business, he could feel it. So that was wonderful. I had his trust. Um, also, I learned about a concept called systems thinking. Yes. And, and yes, and that's when the light switch went on for me. And I was like, ah, yes. So what systems thinking is, is really the art and sciences and be, or the art and science of being able to make inferences about people processes and behaviors so that you see those underlying connections and interrelationships that happen in the structure of your business and the changes that happen. So I was like, aha, so all of these tech, technical people who had so much knowledge, um, who might've been coming from an engineering background or architecture background, who might've known systems thinking, maybe they, that's how they learned this. Maybe that's what I see in these good leaders, but it wasn't consistent. So as I was trying to understand, um, I kept trying to um, work with different executives to see how they think. And so I continued on. What, what do you do when you're stuck? I went, I went and learned some more. Um, so I went back to Columbia because I, I thought that maybe there was something here. I felt that this was an interesting piece of ambiguity that finding out how leaders think when they're immersed in deep ambiguity. I felt that the leadership programs that I had been in and that maybe I had been um, uh, aware of, they help people understand how to be a good leader in good times or normal times. Um, but we, the, the abnormal times were becoming more frequent. And I felt that maybe there wasn't enough tools or resources to help the executives um, through all of these dynamic changes that happen. So um, my journey is my learning journey, and my journey is the the, the progress through um, understanding the business of ambiguity and and kind of um, the, what what came to be obviously the book uh, because it was my research. Sure. So um, so so. So one of the questions that comes to my mind, you know, before you get too far down the road, I mean, we've, we've used the term ambiguity yeah. and, and, and this is a term that can have some different definitions depending on the context of it. But just to lay some context mm. for audience for today's conversation, when we look at ambiguity in the business world, the ambiguity that these, you know, CEOs or high level executives or really sometimes managers, ambiguity can have different looks at different levels in a company based on what's going on. Um, how would you best define Ambiguity. What does it look like at a CEO level? So um, I could say it's when you bump into paradoxes, when you have deep conflicting um, 
agendas between executives or uh, headquarters and the satellite office, uh, when you don't have enough information to make that swift um, decision that your board is asking you to make or your line manager, or when you have to do something the next day and it's, it's, um, you have too many inputs Mm -hmm. and you don't know which ones are important. So it, that's the kind of messy state. And the problem is, is that we get influenced by other people. We, um, we rely on maybe what happened in our previous experience, and that's the answer for this experience, um, but it's different. Um, so a lot of us rely on our competency um, trap. Of, yeah. I've done this five times before. It's going to work the sixth time, but the situation's changed. Um, so you're not paying attention to what's going on and, and the information that could be different this time. That's confusing. That's painful um, to, to get through. And that causes a lot of um, operational disruptions. Absolutely, it does. And so, you know, it, it, there's, there are so many situations where a clear path forward doesn't necessarily present itself. And, you know, I work with a lot of CEOs that find them. I, I had one the other day and, you know, COVID was one of those things or is, I guess, technically yeah. it still is, right? So it, it has created a lot of ambiguity because we're in, everybody's in unchartered territories. And he was looking at a policy change for his organization. And I swear he wanted me to make the decision for him and I wasn't going to do it. I mean, you know, <laughs> there, there is, there, there are so many things that can create a situation um, where there is just, you know, which way do I go here? And, Everybody I hear is taking me in a different direction, but sometime, at some point you got to make, make a decision and move, otherwise you end up paralyzed. Um, lower in an organization, I think ambiguity occurs when the message isn't clear from the top, right? So what, what do I need yes. to do next? Well, I'm not even sure where the organization is going. So I, I would wonder, there's got to be this aspect of kind of almost like a vicious cycle that can happen within a, within a company if, if, things, if there's ambiguity at the top. There's probably ambiguity throughout the whole organization. Right. And, and then your tolerance for it. Um, do you blast through it? Um, it's like, I'm just going to make a decision because that's the best way forward. And that's typically how, you know, executives, they have to keep moving forward, right? They have um, high-level targets to meet and uh, board requirements, um, expectations, and sometimes they, they might stall or pivot in a different way. And you're right, it happens at different levels within the organization. But that exactly was my questions, is um, how do you learn to get better at it? What kind of thinking process do you need? What actions do you need? What's the template? And those actually, be, or, or what circumstances need to happen? And those questions actually became my research. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh my gosh, I was just so many questions are coming to mind right now. We've got about a minute left before the before the break. But you know, I wonder if you could explain one other quick thing. When we come back, I want to dive into some of these other questions. You also used a term, um, which which is more of a modern term today. Um, something I do a lot of work in organizational design. Uh, but for our for again, our listeners who may not have experienced that particular concept when you consider organizational define uh, d- design can you please d- uh, define that for us sure <laughs> i know there's books on it and i yeah, know there's a there's definition out there but uh, one of my advisors at columbia he says it depends yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it really does mean different things to different companies but really it's when you are taking all your business strategy and then understanding the people within your business and the competencies that you need and the structure you need to uh, to um, 
to achieve your, your strategic targets. And that's really paying attention to the structure of your business and how communication patterns and interrelationships are within the business. Yeah, one of the things we say a lot is intention is really, really key, whether you're talking about your culture, your execution, your plan. And all too often we get we get good at the the maybe let's call it the technical stuff. You know, it's it, it's let's face it, it's easy to create a strategic plan. I mean, there's lots of good facilitators mm-hmm. out there. You can you can get all that down. But what about everything else that supports getting it done? The the plan itself is one percent. Ninety nine percent of it's the execution. And if you don't have the right structures and everything behind it, it's very, very important. And you know, this this term organization organizational design has come on the horizon the last 10 or so years, maybe a little bit longer. And, you know, I, I know I've tossed it out a few times and, oh, we got to work on your organizational design. And they're like, what? You know, I get a little glassy eyed on it. So um, it's an important concept though, because it's, it is about everything that supports us moving things forward. Okay. Um, we are at a point where we need to take a quick break. Everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just one minute. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Debbie Sutherland. Uh, Debbie, before we went to the break, we were kind of getting down the path of, of, of you writing this book. And I happen to know you had a lot of time that you put in researching, right? So, so all your experiences took you to this point of curiosity. And now it was, how do we put this into something that is usable? I would describe it because the book is really set up in a way that anybody who reads this book can, can read it and start putting things right into practice. It can start helping them immediately. And as somebody who's written a book himself, I know that that, that point from, you know, knowing what you want to do and actually publishing the book, that's a long, long path. So, so what was the, what was the research you utilized? How did you, how did you gather the data to validate what, what you're, you know, coming up with? And, um, one of the things you talk about are five key thinking behaviors and strategies in the book. How did you get to that particular point? Sure. Um, well, I'm, I mirror what you just said in terms of I'm, I love the academic side of, of, of the research, but I am a corporate person. I love things that are Im- immediately implementable um, to help the company. So I'm an academic practitioner. So I definitely wanted going into my doctorate, I wanted something that was useful so um, I guess just to start is, is, is how did I get the data? Um, so this, it doesn't become an opinion piece. It's actually based on the research. Um, so my, I, I use this, the three theories, systems thinking, organizational behaviors, and adult learning concepts, because I knew that um, sometimes systems thinking is too mathematical. It's too um, decision sciencey, and it's just not practical for the business. Um, so what I did is I sought out executives, high level people who are already working in conditions of ambiguity. And the research was they 
had to have been in this space, the complex adaptive space for over 20 years. Um, they had to have been um, in the UAE, of course, and then at least in three other countries. So I had a, a criteria list just to make sure that I was, uh, I was approaching people um, who would have some great insights. I got a CEO of cybersecurity who was working at the highest levels in the UAE, um, the advisor to a minister of state, CEO of a shipping company. Um, so, I mean, these, um, I was really happy that these gentlemen and ladies um, invited me in and um, to let them, me learn how they think. So I asked them those questions. How do you think? What do you believe in? Um, and what, what experiences helped you there? And so what happens is I just got a whole bunch of, for anyone who's done research, you get salient uh, excerpts from their narratives and then you pick them out and then you have these codes and you categorize and it's all this messy, wonderful space when you're coding it. But it came from 80 codes down to 50 and then it came to five. Interestingly enough, it came into these wonderful spheres of, uh, and I think in spheres, really the individual, yeah. how the individual thinks what's happening in the organization and what's happening in the environment and the five um, um, strategies uh, fell into that systems thinking layer. It was um, exciting to say the least. So, um, so really the first thing is I, I noticed from these executives of what was not there. None, it didn't happen in the codes, not once. They didn't talk about mergers and acquisitions they didn't talk about a leadership course that got them there. It, they didn't talk about business acumen and financial savviness or anything like this. They used really soft, powerful um, uh, um, actions and thinking process of how they get through ambiguity. So that's, that was amazing. And um, that became the premise for the book of just the five thinking and behavior strategies. Sure, sure. Now, you talk about the five strategies and, and behaviors. Um, one of the questions I had is, as you were talking, I've obviously in, in my world, we utilize a lot of assessments. I've used a lot of different tools and there's all kinds of personality types. And I mean, you know, anybody who's been in business has probably had a Myers-Briggs done on them at one time or a disc or, or some other things. And if we distill it all down, we know that there are different types of personalities, right? Um, in the Colby um, system, we know there are different ways of doing things or different cognitive behaviors, different ways of taking action. And it's, it's, the science has been proven, you know, there's, there's nothing to debate here. It's, it's proven science. And we know that there are lots of different approaches and personality mixes that come into play. Do you find that, um, that different styles, different personalities, different approaches handle ambiguity different ways? And, and what would be some examples of that? So one of the first things I found, and, and assessments are amazing. Um, I love assessments. I love reading, um, getting people who under, to understand more of themselves that maybe they, it was a blind spot before. Um, one of the key things that came out was um, these executives were deeply reflective, meaning they weren't just thinking backwards of, of, of a previous experience. They were really trying to make sense of it so they could have a better action in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so they were doing things um, like self-awareness. So they were probably, they probably had an assessment in the past. So they realized that they need to have more self-awareness. There is this amazing concept as the su subject object. 
and and it was from uh, Robert Keegan, Keegan uh, from Harvard professor. And it just like, are you always the subject of the issue, or are you able to rise above it to be the object and watch and and watch the the drama going by? So, um, and then really being able to have another perspective and a better action in the future. The other thing that these executives exemplified was um, they were able to cultivate adaptable mental models, mm. which means that if you brought more information to the table, they would not have to stick to what their previous decision was. They were at, were humble enough to say, wow, that sounds interesting. That's new information. That's good for us. So they were able to, um, but not just adapt their own thinking, they actually had an actions behind it. They, they did it by connecting with people. The one CEO was saying how I would get, I would move outside of my advisor team and I would go down to the lowest level of the company and just start talking to people because they know what's going on just to get information, being curious. Um, So they fostered those types of connections and that's how they, felt that they were getting a better grasp of what was actually happening at that time. So these are, I mean, these are obviously people that were taking some level of purposeful action. Have you ever come across the executive who just, you know, I say shoots from the hip, right? I mean, I've come across plenty of those too that, you know, you know, yeah, there's a ton of ambiguity and guess what? We're doing this. Yeah. But what, what if that sinks the ship? Ah, We'll figure it out. Uh, Do you ever bump into any of those as well? Yeah. And sometimes it's successful. That's why you do it again. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that becomes the practice or um, yeah, that'll work. And sometimes you have to make fast decisions in business. That's just the way it is. I think um, what, um, what these, um, what uh, these executives were saying, um, exemplifying is that yes, you can shoot from the hip, pause, reflect, then go. Um, so at least you are aware of where you're going instead of just moving forward fast and um, fast. And sometimes it works, of course. And, and sometimes it's like, oh yeah, we could probably could have waited for more information. But as long as you're um, moving with that, with that awareness and understanding with no assumptions, no biases and no stubbornness, which you have seen, I've seen, um, this is my decision. This is the way we're going. Even if the information was con contrary to where the best direction would be. You know, and so beyond just the personality thing, I wonder also if there are certain um, differences based on culture and country. You know, one of the things that, that I've learned throughout my career is that different parts of the world also, there's there's almost like this cultural way of, of acting and um, dealing with things and making decisions. For instance, you know, the, the Japanese can be very uh, methodical about it in general. You know, they, they, they tend to, to really think their way through and, and they don't necessarily jump. I, I find the same thing to be true with like the Germans, you know, that I've worked with. They do a lot of, you know, there's a lot of data gathering, a lot of other things, a lot of stability. And I find that older cultures are probably less apt to shoot from the hip and more apt to really consider, maybe act slower and that's just maybe part of who they are while, you know, younger cultures, you know, U.S. is in many regards, we're a young country here. I mean, you know, 200 some odd years old at this point, 250 years old. And, and um, it's, um, you know, I think we, we might tend to, again, be the ones that would, would be more to, to jump right in. And I think it, it, it coincides with some of the research you see where, where 
you know, some countries are considered more entrepreneurial than others. Australia, for instance, very mm-hmm. young country. Um, people there are considered to be very entrepreneurial in many, many ways. And, you know, I, I think it's this this lack of, of, of history, uh, length of history, not not quality of history, obviously, but, lot, lot, you know, the, the number of years that, that older societies like the Japanese, the Chinese, in some cases, some of the European countries, these older, that tend to really think things through and consider. You mentioned that you utilize the UAE. Obviously, you're there. Um, I'm really a little cu- curious about the UAE culture. You know, um, it's a it's a modern um, it's a modern take on on old culture when you're in the UAE. Um, you know, you're in a part of the country, for instance, that part of the world, I should say, where um, you as a woman, you can you can rise to a executive level. But that may not happen in some of the other Arabic countries. Right. I mean, it's just there's there's different Mm. things that are there. And so as you consider like the UAE, what other countries did you utilize in your research? So I the executives I um, brought into the mix were from different nationalities, um, not just UA nationals, yeah. but although I did have some UA nationals in it as well. Um, it, it's interesting when you're working in this type of environment where there's just so many uh, nationalities uh, every day in your business and in a lot of different businesses, it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> you, you can say the same thing and agree upon things in the, in the meeting and you're all nodding your heads, but you'll, you'll find that people go away with different interpretations of what happened um, based on who they are their values, what they grew up, what they grew up with, what their family values in their home country meant different things. And so you do get a lot of messy situations um, based on those beliefs. Um, And then you really have to dig deep to just understand what they're trying to understand as well. Um, So, um, so I, I guess to answer your question, it helps to have a global mindset a constructive, struct, I call it cons- social constructivist um, mindset where you know there's other point of views out there. So just be curious enough to ask for somebody else's opinion sometimes. You don't have to necessarily travel to different countries um, to become more self-aware of the world and what other people are thinking. As you said at the beginning, um, the pandemic has stopped us from traveling, but that hasn't stopped us from thinking about how the other people and that's another nationality is thinking. Yeah. And so there are a couple other things that came to mind as, as you were talking earlier, you know, you were talking about, you know, sometimes you put things into action and then you have to step back and think. And we were talking about organizational design, one organizational mm. design theory that a lot of people would be familiar with. Um, maybe they wouldn't be necessarily familiar with the design, but at least the term, we call it lean today. Lean was an offshoot of, you know, really a Japanese philosophy of continuous improvement. And if you look at the basis of it, you know, there's this kind of plan, do, check, adjust are like the four steps, you know, what, what's yeah. the idea, you know, let's put it into action. Let's check on how it's doing. Let's adjust. And it's a cycle, you know, it, it, you just, and then now you, you, you plan again based on where you're going. Um, another word you've used a lot, which, which I love is the word curious and curiosity. I think it requires curiosity to follow that organizational design because otherwise you just, you say, okay, go with it. And if you don't have that curiosity to say, well, how's the decision working? Or even earlier in the planning stage, don't have the curiosity to go and gather information from from those around you. I love your example of the executive that goes to the lowest level in an organization, find out what's really happening. If you don't have that curiosity, I, I think you can find yourself lost. 
Um, I quite frankly come across some people that don't have that curiosity in them. So one thing I'd love to know your opinion on this um, is can you teach curiosity? Can you actually teach that? Or is that, is there a certain amount of that that has to be inborn to somebody? Amazing. Um, there, I used to do knowledge sharing sessions. Yeah. Um, and it used to irk me so much when um, some, I know that these two people who had come into my knowledge sharing session have worked in the same company for five years and have been a hundred yards apart, maybe different parts of the business, but they shake hands and say, hi, I'm so-and-so you, because they never met each other. They never stepped out outside of their little comfort zone of their desk, of their sphere, the other side of the business to get to know what was really happening. So there was no curiosity to what was happening. So um, maybe I, uh, curiosity is always something that's is been interesting to me as well. I did dive into the other side of that is knowledge sharing. Yeah. You can't force people to share knowledge. Um, and sometimes you don't know what knowledge is important enough to share for the business. But when you talk about organizational design, if you can move information and knowledge and expertise around the business and through the business and somebody knows where it is to tap into, oh, Bob over here knows this client because we were working in three years and behind uh, in previously, and now we're moving in this direction. So if we find that information, it's, it's important. So um, there is the theory of John Dewey, mm-hmm. uh, inquiry and curiosity, right? You have to be able to um, take the effort to inquire about people, um, about the behaviors. You have to get to know. That's the strategy number four, actually, is learn about the person, context, and their environment. Everybody brings their full self to work. Do you know them? Or just the person who just sits in front of you for a few hours um, and their work outputs. Um, You have to get to know them to, um, to really understand um, how they're delivering for you in the business. Got it. And I have to say, I really absolutely agree with that point. Getting to know somebody is the foundation of, of building trust, and that allows for much, much better conversation. I think that that's what's going to allow us to dive into greater amounts of communication and curiosity and really work towards the best possible solutions. So absolutely getting to know people. I also can't help but think about a CEO I know that um, would do curiosity sessions with his um, teams. You know, he'd bring them together and say, you know what, we're just going to spend some time and we're going to really, really get curious about the issue at hand. I think that that's a chance to, to get people into the conversation, but they won't get into the conversation unless there's some level of trust in play. And that's where getting to know people becomes very, very important. Okay, well, this brings us to another break. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Debbie to continue our conversation. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, 
please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Dr. Debbie Sutherland. Um, so, Debbie, we were kind of talking about curiosity before the break, and um, we were talking about learning through uh, person, context, and environment was one of the comments that you made. One of the things I actually really like about about the book that I've, I've seen is, is you've got a lot of very, very practical, not just good stories, but you've got some practical tools. And you actually offer a tool to help, I would describe it as people think through situations. You call it the ladder of inference. Um, it's, a, it's, it's an older model, but you reshared it. And I think it's quite powerful. I wonder if you could share something about that and, and, and maybe share how you've put that into practice. Sure. Well, the ladder of inference is, 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 uh, is a, you're right, is a very good tool. Um, it's, it's being able to um, understand people, uh, the situation, without, run, the, the, without running up the ladder and falling off without any information. So essentially, you take the first rank step on the ladder and you're collecting data. And then you're testing your assumptions and with the data that you have. So you're, you're moving up the ladder with more information. And then how it's useful in the business is if somebody comes into your office and said, you will never promote me. Um, you're a bad line manager. And so what this person has done is just run up this ladder of, of, of inference. And even though they haven't had a performance review yet, and it might be, something that he needs to talk to his line manager about, but maybe it was, um, he just got all caught up in his emotions and assumptions of when the next promotion cycle is going to happen and he's not going to be on it. So um, we bring it into the office and sometimes it's a quick um, tool to use when you're in a meeting um, by saying, no, I don't think we should go with that direction. And they go, why? They go, that's just because that's what I know. And that person has probably run up this ladder um, with assumptions and, but you have to kind of break it down and say, well, why do you really think we should go in this strategic direction? What are you thinking? What experiences have you had that think this is the right direction? And then you're socializing that information with the group to say, yes, it probably isn't. Or did you know about this other information and research study that should, maybe we should be looking at before we make a decision. So um, this has been a really good tool as well as another oldie and a goodie is the Jahari window Mm -hmm. is where you have information of, of, of yourself and how you are interacting with the team, but you probably have some blind spots um, that your team sees that you don't see. And what you should be doing is having open and honest communication so that the known knowns, unknown knowns become known um, so that you can have open and trusting relationships at work where you're not trying to hide um, insecurities um, uh, from the team. So that's a really good tool as well. Yeah. And it's, it's an important point because, you know, if, if, if we believe Patrick Lencioni and I do, the basis of trust, right? Trust is the basis of functionality in organizations. And in order to get there, people have to be willing to be vulnerable. And that's a, a word that people don't always like. Yet, it's, it's an essential part of it. It's, it's when you can be human with somebody else or with others. And when those walls are up, people won't trust you, but you're not trusting others as well. So it's, it really does that that concept of vulnerability really does fit in here. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it, it's, it's the whole person learning mm-hmm. theory that we all come to work, um, our whole selves, and we should get to know each other in a holistic way um, because that builds trust yes. and it makes the business, um, it's easier to just to have good discussions. I've seen many executives and, and, and people that might not have a good trusting environment hide mistakes. And they get so good at hiding mistakes that it becomes a systemic uh, thing throughout the organization. And it, it only hides for so long, of course, and then it erupts into somewhere in the business. Um, so the more trusting environment you have so that you can kind of see a mistake, correct a mistake, and then move on. Um, and I think in the book, there is one of the leaders um, she works in the medical domain. She was, she is a, um, a chief at, at, at a, a world renowned hospital. And she said that they have this practice that if you cover up a mistake and it is found out that you could lose your job, it's because you really need to highlight everything that's going on in the business warts and all um, to really understand how you can make positive change moving forward. Yeah. And that, that concept of learning from mistakes is so very important because everybody makes them. It's also this, mm-hmm. this fear of vulnerability or the need to be invulnerable that stops people from putting that out there. It's, it's, it's really a, a barrier to trust as it stands. You know, throughout your career, you have uh, worked obviously in a lot of organizations and uh, your current one today, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a big one. I think it's a tech startup, but you're doing some amazing things. You're in a chief role yourself throughout your career, what experiences have you had that, um, you know, I, I always love to hear the, the, the successes, but also some of the failures, right? What are some stories you might have about where you've helped teams either work through ambiguity or you've watched a, you know, a situation where something's blown up because people didn't handle it correctly? Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a tough space to be in to, to coach anyone when you're in that um, messy space. Um, it does come down to micro moments of finding out what's going on, global budgets, um, new strategy plans. I think the errors happen um, when you are frustrated and you're exposed and you'll, you'll see the executives yell at somebody for sure that happens. Um, but it's when they might not ever reflect back to um, a space of why they yelled because of the pressures in the background. So how we've helped teams in the past was to sit down and do um, some perspective taking of where we are. So you have to slow it down just briefly um, to know that there is new information that we have and sitting down as a group. Um, I guess the biggest mistake I see executives made is they got very siloed. They just go to their, their four or five people of the executive team and they try to think through it themselves without bringing the business along and getting more information. So I think it's um, what I saw with these executives I interviewed, they actually open it up and become that vulnerable and trust that you, um, that you were talking about instead of going deep into the security or sorry, secretive of, of only us four people know the answer. Right. And, you know, in the absence of information, people create their own story. 
Well, let, let's face it. And when times are ambiguous, when there's stress in an organization, when the communication breaks down, we've all seen it, um, whether we've been part of the group or the group you know, above us is in play, uh, we've all seen the small group try to sequester themselves to figure things out. And, yeah. and not only are they missing a, a huge bunch of information that can help them, they are they, they are engaging in a behavior that, that actually drives some level of mistrust throughout the organization. Now, look, not every decision can go to the ranks. Uh, let, let's be clear on that. But yeah. communication has to be clear. And if you can gather information, the more people you can get engaged in the process, the better the story is for everyone. And when the story is right, people will pull together and engage and move an organization forward. We are all naturally wired to a negative bias. That's what protects us. That's how we think things through. Mm -hmm. And that negative bias will get us in trouble because in the absence of information, we assume the worst. Think about times in your past. I've, I can think about lots of them in mine. You know, all of our listeners, you know, when you, when you don't know what's happening, you assume the worst and, and, and we can try not to. And, and I know that there are some people out there that are super, super positive, but stress does that. So communication, engagement, engagement with people becomes essential in this process. Yeah. So there's a few other things that um, I think uh, if executives or, you know, emerging leaders uh, try to think about, I can boil it down to three things that probably are the biggest mistakes is their ego. Um, right they are a leader for a reason. They think they have to make these decisions dynamically and fast. The illusion of control, just because you're an executive doesn't mean you really, and you have hierarchy control doesn't mean that um, you actually have control of people's behaviors and attitudes. Um, that's, that's a given, but we still think that. Um, and the absence of time, I think, um, or sorry, the time constraints upon us, I think, are so strong in a business, and especially during times of ambiguity, that you um, don't use your time appropriately and, and you get crunched. And that's why you feel you have to make these really uh, fast-paced decisions. Um, I call it the deliberate pause. It doesn't take long to have a strategy session or to regroup people or to reflect back even in the moment but taking that deliberate pause that you can move forward quickly is always, is, is another mistake I've seen when they don't do that. Yeah. You know, it, it's so easy to use time or the absence of time as an excuse. And yes, sometimes there is no time. Sometimes there's a deadline. Sometimes there's a fire. And if you don't get it put out, it's going to burn the building down. Right. I, it, it's, that does happen my experience is, is that that actually doesn't happen as much as we think it does. I think, I think sometimes, mm, exactly. we, again, we make things into these huge issues that need to be acted upon when a pause could be the best thing that we can possibly do. Yes, absolutely. So um, we're, we're kind of coming a, a bit to the end. Uh, we've got maybe an, another minute or two, um, but I want to take a, take a, a, a moment and, and talk about the book itself, um, where you can get it and everything. So the, the title of the book is The Business of Ambiguity, and then there's a tagline, Demystify the Unknown with Five Key Thinking and Behavior Strategies by Dr. Debbie Sutherland. So that, that's all the, the appropriate information. Where, uh, where can everybody find this book? 
Um, so it's on every digital platform, Goodreads and Amazon. Um, it's not in bookstores per se. The book has come, come out during the, the pandemic. So I, I, in terms of publishing, I wanted it to be in everyone's hands, knowing that they wouldn't be going to bookstores. Excellent. Uh, any other books in, in the works? Any, any other thoughts on that? Well, Sometimes getting one out is so much work that it's hard to think about another one, but, but you're also, as a researcher, you may have some other ideas that you're thinking about. Well, I would love to hear from people who, um, who have read the book. I'm getting some great feedback from executives who, who want to buy the book for everybody in their company so that they, they have the same messages. So it's amazing. So obviously, back, based on feedback, that, that's something. I know my CEO wants to do um, 2.0, um, uh, but it really comes down to helping people gain this ambiguity mindset with these key strategies um, because I think it's easy. I think once you see it, it's not all that complex. There's a lot of research for sure in this, um, but it really comes down to an easy to read book that I think some things that you can implement right away. Yeah. Yeah. I found, I found the same thing. Okay. Well, we are, we're at the end of our time, so it's, it's, it's time for us to, to move on. Uh, Debbie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. It's been amazing. Thank you. It's been fun. So, uh, as always, everyone, you know, stay tuned. We've got more great ep- episodes of Transformative Experts that are coming in the future. We've got some good guests coming up. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.